Who do you say I am? And this one person, Peter, says, you are the Christ. And Jesus affirms Peter in this moment. In the Gospel of Matthew, he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so things for Peter at this moment are probably feeling pretty good, right? The, the Jesus movement is going forward. Jesus has been healing people, miraculously feeding people, and he just answered this really difficult question and received this beautiful affirmation from Jesus. And so then we move into the next section. This is Mark 8, 31 through 33, and it says this. He, being Jesus, then began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns." So that positive, good vibration, groove, awesome feeling, momentum has now been completely halted. One uh, person, Reverend T. Denise Anderson, said, hard truths trouble and disturb the waters of our understanding. And for Peter, hearing Jesus foretell of his agonizing death and resurrection probably didn't make any sense. How could the Messiah, how could the Christ, the person who I just identified in this really miraculous way, talk like this? And so Peter, it says, pulls Jesus aside, right? The scene would be Jesus is speaking and Peter walks up and is like, hey, come over for a sec. Like, I just, I don't know if you really understood what you were saying there. Like, that didn't really go over so well. Um, or however he's gonna try to explain it to him. Peter wants to quiet Jesus because his understanding has been troubled, Jesus instead quiets Peter. And sometimes we need to either be quiet or be quieted in order to listen. Can you think of a time when you received a hard truth that troubled the waters of your understanding and challenged your very notions of reality? How did you react in that moment? Was there a change in you? Were you able to receive that truth? Can you remember a time when God has quieted you? We read in Psalm 46, verses 9 and 10, He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It's an interesting verse to have present in our time. Be still and know that I am God. Sometimes we have to be still, we have to be quieted in order to hear. Just after the section in Mark that we previously went through, there's another moment 
This is in Mark 9, verses 2 through 8, and it says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and he led them up a high mountain where they were alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say because he was so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Now, this is a moment where Jesus is a little more fitting probably Peter's expectations for who Jesus should be. This majestic transfiguration is taking place. And Moses and Elijah, two people who have been long dead, are present somehow. And Peter's thrown off by all this. We read in Scripture that says he didn't know what to say because he was frightened. At least he defaults to hospitality, right? Hey, I'm kind of freaked out, but let's build a tent for you. That's good, right? It's good that we're here. Have you ever been in those moments where you're kind of scared? You're like, hey, yeah, this feels okay. I wonder if Peter had that tone in his voice. Probably not, but... um, But the response here to Peter is not from Jesus this time, but it's from God. The voice of God that says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Right? I want to be really clear. The first part is a statement. This is my son whom I love. The second part, listen to him. It's got a big old exclamation point on the end of it. Sometimes fear can distract or dislodge us from a place of being able to hear from God. And here we have God's voice interrupting Peter, reminding him of who Jesus is. Yes, I know that Moses and Elijah are there, but as soon as the voice speaks, they're gone. Because you need to listen to Jesus. Sometimes there are other voices, even things that seem good that can distract us from listening. Here we see Peter's distracted, and I think understandably so. Two dead guys are there. Jesus is like glowing. His clothes have changed color, right? And these are not just dead guys, right? I think that's what you said, two heroes, right? These are like really important people, and they're there. It's very understandable how he's distracted. Sometimes we can be so focused on something else that we miss something that's very obvious. There's a mini-mart on the corner of 65th and 35th that I will often stop into to get a delicious soda. Uh, And I've been getting to know the owners and the people who work there. Um, And Friday I stopped by, and as I was turning off my car and getting ready to walk in, I was thinking, this is all about faithful presence, right? I'm going to go in, and I'm going to say hello, and I'm going to be kind, and I'm going to bless and encourage them, because that's what we do in being faithfully present. And I walked in, Walked straight to the back, and I noticed that the owner and one of the employees was standing in the entryway, and I said, good morning, and I walked to the back and grabbed my pop, and I walked up to the counter, and uh, I said, you know, good morning, and exchanged those, you know, money and pop and all that stuff, and then I said, so how's your morning going? And the person behind the counter looked at me like, are you okay? 
And, uh, and then they said, uh, actually, not well. And again, with a look of like, you don't get it, do you? And I immediately knew that there was something I was missing. And so I said, I'm really sorry. What, what's going on? And again, they looked at me and they said, I don't know if you noticed when you came in. And then they left it with a dot, dot, dot. And I turned and I looked and there were no doors on the building. And the glass panes surrounding it were like shattered. Just spiderweb cracks all over the place. And I was like, oh, that entry that I just came marching right through, I completely missed that your store got broken into. Someone stole a car from another neighborhood and drove it through the front doors looking for an ATM machine. Thankfully, that store has no ATM machine. They take all their cash and everything out. And so they said they're, at that moment, they hadn't really discovered everything that may have been stolen. Uh, so they didn't feel like a ton had been. Um, but still, they're trying to replace these doors. And the, the, the reason I bring this up is to say that I was distracted enough by the principles of the mission, which was faithful presence, go in and be warm and kind and friendly, uh, that I missed the actual mission, right? I missed the thing. And so I was so focused on the principles that the principles have not become so ingrained in me because I'm still working on it, I'm still practicing, I'm still listening that I missed it, and thankfully in that moment, I had another opportunity. I was like, I'm so sorry, and we talked for a little bit, and um, you know, but, but that's the thing, is sometimes, even though it's something good, like I was distracted by the thoughts and the principles of the mission, and I, and I, I had to circle around and come in for a better opportunity. And I think one of the things with Peter here is um, the, the, the appearance of Moses and Elijah, I think, is a good thing. I think it's a good thing for Peter to see. I think there's something amazing happening there. But what God was saying was, yep, they're there, but I need you to listen to Jesus. I need you to listen to my son. The last piece of scripture I want to look at is in Acts 10. And in this section, uh, we're going to meet a person named Cornelius. And Cornelius is described as a centurion, which is basically a captain in the Roman military. And he's stationed with his soldiers in Judea. And it's also noted in this section that his family is what they call devout and God-fearing. And what this is, is this is the, the gospel writers and the New Testament writers' way of describing a Gentile, so someone who's non-Jewish, but who has some kind of movement towards uh, Yahweh, the Jewish God, God of Israel. And so Cornelius and his family are described as devout and God-fearing. And Cornelius has this vision where this angel shows up and uh, instructs him to send some people to Joppa and find this guy named Peter. So he doesn't know Peter, but an angel shows up and says, you need to send some people to Peter and get him to come back. And so he listens and he gathers some of his men and says, go find this guy named Peter in Joppa and tell him everything that happened. And so that's where we pick up. This is Acts 10, uh, verses 9 through 22. About noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. I do want to say some versions translate it, he fell asleep. Um, trance may be a way of uh, somehow trying to 
say that he wasn't sleeping, like as somehow sleeping would be bad. Uh, I'm very okay with either one, Peter falling asleep or trance, doesn't matter, but just thought I'd throw that in in case you're the person who tends to fall asleep. It's okay. Um, He saw heaven opened in something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was, and they stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs, do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. I want you to remember that part. These men are telling Peter why he's supposed to go. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Okay. So, Right after that, what happens is Peter goes with these guys, a day later arrives in Caesarea, which is predominantly a Gentile city. And what this means for Peter is he's entering into a place that he is going to see because of his life um, in the Jewish culture and in in Judaism, uh, it's going to be an unclean place. Because uh, Jewish people consider Gentiles to be unclean, and predominantly because they were often involved in so many different religions, had all these gods they worshipped and idols, and their interaction with those things made them both externally and internally unclean. And so if Peter were to engage with them, he would need to go through all these purification processes, and and so there was a law in in Jewish law that said don't do that. And Peter, in fact, brings that up. Uh, in the next section it says and so he's there now he's arrived and it says while talking with them Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people he said to them you were all aware that is it against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean so when I was sent for I came without raising any objection and so here's we see that Peter's not only listening to God but he's responding, there's action, there's movement involved, and that this listening leads him to do something that previously he had seen as completely impossible to do. Peter, listening to God here, moves him in a path that is now in line with God's will, and what Peter does from this place next is critical, because he asks Cornelius, may I ask why you sent for me. And I had you remember back in the, in the passage we read that Peter already knows why. Peter's already been told why. He doesn't have to ask. Peter could walk in and say, hey, I'm here. Here's the message of Jesus. But Peter makes space for the unclean voice. He gives space for Cornelius to speak, and not just to speak, but to direct. I'm in your house, Cornelius. You are the host. Why am I here? 
The unclean voice is given space to speak and be part of the conversation. And so he tells Peter exactly what happened. And from that space, Peter is then able to communicate the story of Jesus to Cornelius because he's listened to God and he's learned that God doesn't show favoritism is what he says, but accepts from every nation the one who fears, uh, fears God and does what is right. And from that space, he's able to say, yeah, your voice is welcome here. And so I wonder is as we move through this Lenten season, can we find ways to be quiet Can we find ways to listen to God that allow us to be set on paths where maybe we can be listening to others for opportunities, opportunities to share through our presence and actions the life of Jesus? I want to invite the worship team uh, back up. And in just a moment, I have a closing question and then I'm going to pray and the worship team's going to play instrumentally for a moment to give all of us a second to digest and reflect on the morning and our time together, including the, the question in a minute. But I want you to know, we'd love it if you write down your responses on the connection cards, either the ones on the seats here or if you're watching online, the digital one we have for you. But it doesn't have to be in relation to the sermon or it, it could be anything you're thinking about. We we love to hear your thoughts and, and things you're thinking about and directions you might have for us. We really do value those. So anything at all that you feel like you need to communicate to us, please uh, take a moment to, um, to do that. Uh, also want to let you know that the prayer team is going to be available um, to pray with you over anything that you want. As soon as we shift into the, uh, the reflection moment, um, they'll, they'll be up and ready to, to pray with you. Um, now, um, just to let the worship team know, the quotes that I'm going to read is kind of long, so if you need to hunker down for a minute, uh, please do that. Uh, but I want to share with you something that uh, quieted me recently. Um, I was recently reading a speech that was given by uh, a woman named Josephine Butler um, at a conference at Cambridge University in 1879. Um, And uh, Josephine Butler was really well known for her deep care and advocacy for what were called the outcast women. And these were usually uh, women who had been sold into slavery or were in prostitution rings or were in uh, sex trafficking. Um, And she was asked to come to Cambridge because of her work with the outcast women and talk on uh, what she labeled uh, and what the topic that was given to her was, uh, can you please do a talk on social purity? Um, and she kind of started off by saying, you know, it's kind of a vague topic, but hopefully by the end of this, it will no longer be vague. Um, uh, and, and the part where we're going to pick up, she's, she's shifting to, to sort of address this group of young men at Cambridge, um, and what might their response in this be? Um, it's a long section, so I don't have it up here. I'm just going to ask that you listen. This is an artist's rendering of uh, Josephine Butler. Um, Yeah, so here we go. Yet, at all ages and in all positions, there is a moral responsibility in regard to this question, even though the time or the call to action may not have yet come. I have endeavored to think carefully what is the nature of the responsibility laid upon you. What is the nature of the active effort, if any, which is demanded of you? And I venture to give you the result of my thoughts." Observe, so far as I take upon myself to indicate to you your own part, I do it with reserve and I am subject to correction. But when I speak of principles on this matter, 
when I tell you of what men and women generally ought to be and do in regard to it, when I speak of justice and injustice, of selfishness and cruel wrong, and of the redress of that wrong, I speak with no reserve, with no hesitation, but with immovable conviction. And from a somewhat deep and wide experience, as a woman addressing men on the subject most vital to us next to our relations with God, I speak also with authority. It will be useful to consider first what is that, what it is that lies at the root of the evil which we are gathered together here today to consider with a view to opposing it. The root of the evil is the unequaled standard in morality, the false idea that there is one code of morality for men and another for women, which has prevailed since the beginning, which was proclaimed to be false by him who spoke as the Son of God, and yet which grew up again after his time in Christian communities, endorsed by the silence of the church itself, in which has within the last century been publicly proclaimed as an axiom by almost all the government of the civilized and Christian world. This unequal standard has more or less colored and shaped the whole of our social life, even in lands where a high degree of morality and attachment to domestic life prevails, the measure of the moral strictness of the people is too often the bitterness of their treatment of the erring woman and of her alone. Some will tell me that this is the inevitable rule and that the sternest possible reprobation of the female sinner as being the most deeply culpable has marked every age and all teaching in which the moral standard was high. No. Not every age, nor all teaching. There stands on the page of history one marked exception, and so far as I know, the only, that of Christ. I will ask you the question of today, therefore, in this connection. What think ye of Christ? Come with me into his presence. Let us go with him into the temple. Let us look at him on the occasion when men rudely thrust into his presence a woman who with loud-tongued accusation they condemned as an impure and hateful thing. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. At the close of that interview, he asked, Woman, where are those, where are those thine accusers? It was a significant question, and we ask it again today. Where and who are they? In what state are their consciences? Being from the eldest even to the youngest, they went out, scared by the searching presence of him who admitted not for one moment that God's law of purity should be relaxed for what is perceived to be the stronger while imposed in its utmost severity on what has been named the weaker. I was quieted in my soul by Josephine Butler. Her intimate knowledge of uh, her intimate relationship with Jesus and her intimate knowledge of Jesus in Scripture. That out of that relationship, she spoke so directly, lovingly, and engaged and confronted the issues of her time, which is sadly an issue still today. And she masterfully interprets this passage and takes this group of young men to task in her asking, what think ye of Christ? I think Josephine Butler would uh, task us in the same way, that this is the root of our listening and our responding out of that listening. 
So what I'd like to do this morning is to, um, is to remember Josephine Butler and close today with her question for us of what think ye of Christ. Heavenly Father, I give you great thanks for your presence in this world, for people who have spoken, and for people who have listened. Um, I ask that there would be no voices um, excluded from the table. Lord, you give an open invitation to come and reason with you. I would pray that we would give everyone a voice in the conversation, and not just as a token checkbox, but as a voice that gets to speak and be heard and understood. Jesus, I ask that you help us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you help us to attend to this hurting and broken world, and that you would bring healing, and you would bring hope, and you would bring new life, God. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.